Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The president thinks Devin Nunes will someday be recognized as an American hero, but even Republicans are distancing themselves from his memo. I'll talk with reporter Michael Isakoff, mentioned in the memo. The Associated Press has documented mass graves in Burma. We'll catch up with recent revelations on the Rohingya. And you'll hear how the city of Vienna includes women in its urban design. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. One of the surprises from the Nunez FBI memo was the inclusion of a news story as evidence in a FISA court. The memo cited an article by Yahoo News Chief Investigative Correspondent Michael Isakoff. Michael Isakoff is the author of the upcoming book, Russian Roulette, the Inside Story of Putin's War on America and the Election of Donald Trump. Thanks a lot for joining us, Michael Isakoff. I imagine it's been. By the way, I am the co-author with David Korn. We've written written the book together. The book is out on March twenty. It must have been an interesting few days for you. Uh, What was it like when you found out you were in the memo itself? I was pretty stunned. Um, I had no idea uh, I would have been cited to the FISA court. Uh, Of course, the court's process is uh, cloaked in secrecy, so one would never know. Um, know, My first reaction was it was a little surprising because all the information in my article was information that the FBI already had. Um, And in fact, the gist of the piece, which ran on September 23rd of 2016 um, on uh, the Yahoo News website, was that the FBI was investigating these claims about uh, Carter Page uh, and his contacts in Moscow during his trip there uh, the uh, previous July. Um, Now, so the point was that um, you know, the FBI already had the information. Uh, they were following up. Uh, it's about a month later. They go to the FISA court to get the uh, surveillance warrant. So it seemed a bit odd to me that my piece would be cited to the court as corroborating evidence for the allegations they were already uh, investigating. Um, on the other hand, I should point out that you know there are a lot of questions about the accuracy of this memo. And um, Adam Schiff, the ranking Democrat, was uh, on one of the talk shows yesterday and said uh, that which they used my article to corroborate was not information that came from Christopher Steele, which was the whole point of the Republican version of this, but they were using it to corroborate other information. And in fact, there were other sources quoted uh, and other uh, uh, details included in that piece, if one goes back and looks at it, uh, about Page's background, his uh, uh, U.S. officials. He'd been on the radar screen of U.S. officials for some time. So they may have been using my article 
to corroborate, you know, other portions than that which was suggested in the Republican memo. Now, it sounds like the Democrats have, want to issue a memo of their own to kind of fill in the gaps here. Uh, that's, right. That would seem to be helpful. <laughs> it would seem to be something that would uh, illuminate things a little better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but look, I, 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 more transparency, more information is better than less information. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing to uh, put as much uh, spotlight as one can on the FISA process. It's something civil liberties uh, advocates have been concerned about for some time. The problem with the memo that was released the other day is that it's clearly a selective um, uh, document that was written for political purposes. So it was, you know, on its face, cherry-picking some information in the, uh, uh, in the FISA process and, and leaving out others. The Democratic memo, you know, one could presume will do something similar from the other perspective. Uh, what I would like to see is as much as... Uh, as much transparency as is possible on the actual FISA application itself. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see Andrew McCabe's. That's the, he was the deputy director of the FBI. I'd like to see exactly what he said during his testimony uh, before the House Intelligence Committee on this matter. We got we, you know, we have conflicting accounts from Nunes and Schiff about exactly what he said. Let's see the transcript uh, instead of relying on the partisan spins of both sides. I'm talking with Michael Isakoff, investigative reporter who works with Yahoo News, and he's the auth- co-author of the upcoming book, Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. Um it you know we've even had Republican lawmakers um, come out and distance themselves from the memo now. Uh, do you, do you think this is just plain backfired on uh, on Devin Nunes? You know, I look. It, it's hard to say uh, if you watch Fox News in the evening and listen to Sean Hannity, uh, you'd think that this was a devastating document that completely undercuts the validity of the Mueller investigation. Um, I don't think it, you know, I think the consensus is it doesn't really do that. Um, uh, But, you know, certainly this provides ammunition to the president's uh, allies and and supporters out there um, to um, go after you know, uh, Mueller, go after Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, go after anything that flows from this investigation, um, basing it on the argument it's all the fruit of a poison tree, the poison tree being the Christopher Steele dossier. Um, but even on its face, um, the some of the contents in the memo undercuts uh, the way Sean Hannity and others are spinning this. For one thing, it makes it clear that the investigation, the, the FBI's counterintelligence investigation, was triggered not by the Steele dossier, but by the reports uh, the FBI received about another foreign policy advisor to Trump, George Papadopoulos, and his boast that he had information from Russian cutouts that the Russians had dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. So, 
if that was in fact, as the, the memo acknowledges, the real trigger for the investigation, the Steele dossier, the, the claim that this was all based on a politically driven oppo research document kind of uh, fades. Um, it, just another quick point, uh, the memo also makes clear that there were three renewals of that Carter Page surveillance warrant, something that could only have happened um, uh, if the FBI presented evidence to the FISA court that it was getting fruitful information from its uh, 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 wiretapping of Carter Page. And this seems to be why there seem a lot of people are drawing the conclusion that it's conf- this memo and these three renewals confirm the idea that there was a lot to go on and there's, uh, there is good reason to, to investigate and uh, not a good reason to kind of think that this is some kind of a conspiratorial cabal. Yeah, look, uh, there's there's a lot of a lot of things we don't know about what what went down here. Um, we don't know what the other evidence is that the FBI had that they presented to the court that uh, raised their concerns about Carter Page possibly being a Russian um, uh, intelligence a- agent uh, or asset of a foreign power, agent of a foreign power, uh, which is the legal standard. Um, we don't know what they got from the Carter Page surveillance. Um, we haven't seen that evidence. We don't know if the surveillance continued beyond October of last year. They got three renewals. Uh, that's four separate warrants for 90 days apiece. That takes you through a year. Did they continue it, uh, or did they ultimately conclude that um, it was no longer fruitful, that, you know, it's worth noting he hasn't been charged with any crime, he hasn't been arrested for espionage. Um, So, you know, this may be a a situation where it falls into a gray area, a murky area, where the FBI has strong suspicions about many of his contacts, but can't quite prove a case uh, that he's a uh, witting, knowing agent of a foreign power. You know, Carter Page is such an unusual character. I, he's he is suing Yahoo News and other uh, yes. news organizations uh, for uh, for misdepicting him, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, but he comes off in interviews, which he does easily and voluminously. As uh, as somebody kind of not, uh, you might want to investigate him. <laughs> <He's> not... <laughs> said all sorts of conflicting things. Uh, He gets uh, very, um, uh, you know, especially when you try to pin him down on specifics, he goes into, well, I didn't talk about anything of significance, or it wasn't a meeting as a real meeting. It was, you know, well, what was it? We do know that while he has adamantly denied the specific allegations in the Steele dossier that he met with an individual named Igor Sechin, who's the head of Rosneft, the Putin crony, the Russian energy firm, uh, and and discussed uh, the lifting of sanctions um, under a Trump presidency. Um, he has admitted to other meetings, including the chief of investor relations of Rosneft while he was there. He's admitted he spoke to uh, the deputy prime minister of Russia uh, during the speech, uh, after the speech he gave uh, in Moscow in July of 2016. We know from the release of his testimony that he sent emails to 
to the um, Trump campaign after his trip, uh, saying he had gleaned important insights from Russian lawmakers and Russian officials, which he wants to share with the uh, Trump campaign. So clearly there was something there of substance in terms of his conversations with uh, Kremlin officials that prompted him to alert the Trump campaign to uh, what, what had taken place. You know, on Friday, it seemed like the um, the country was on edge about this memo and that this was going to be something that could, you know, possibly be used to really upset the constitutional order. And, you know, here on Monday, Monday afternoon, it looks completely different. Um, uh, what just happened here? <laughs> well, look, this is a skirmish in a much larger uh, battle war, really, uh, between uh, the Trump White House and its allies uh, and uh, the intelligence community, um, the law enforcement community, uh, and, uh, and, and Democrats. Um, so, you know, it, this may fade over time uh, in terms of the significance of this memo, but, you know, look, at the end of the day, there's going to be a reckoning. Um, uh, uh, in which, you know, both sides are going to have their very strongly held and proclaimed positions put up to scrutiny. Robert Mueller is doing this investigation. At some point, he will either bring further criminal charges or he will write some report at, at some point um, we can presume that uh, the results of his investigation will become known. Uh, we will know if, if, with all the resources he's got, uh, all the prosecutors, all the FBI agents, he has been able to verify the broad claims of collusion that were made in the Steele dossier that many uh, Democrats uh, argued um, had taken place here, or uh, or not. And... Um, you know, uh, I, I think the jury is still out on some of the big, um, um, you know, the, the central issues in this whole matter. But we do know a lot. We do know there were lots of contacts between the Trump campaign and um, and Russian officials. We do know the Trump Tower meeting took place. We do know that George Papadopoulos was uh, um, uh, was in touch with the Russian cutouts who were offering dirt on Hillary Clinton. You know, we've learned a lot. What it all ultimately adds up to, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see. Although I should say, we'll have a lot more information in our book, which will be coming out in about a month. Michael Isikoff is co-author of the upcoming Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. He's an investigative reporter with Yahoo News, who was mentioned in the Nunes memo, FBI memo, uh, that was released on Friday. Thanks for joining us, Michael Isikoff. Sure, anytime. After the break, we'll catch up on the latest with the Rohingya. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Last week, the Associated Press independently verified five Rohingya mass graves in Burma. On Friday, the U.N. Special Envoy on Human Rights said in Myanmar that uh, the AP's report bears all the hallmarks of genocide. Azim Ibrahim is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Policy, and he's the author of The Rohingyas, Inside Myanmar's Hidden Genocide. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Jadul. What did you make of the AP's report last week? Uh, I imagine a lot of news organizations haven't gone to the trouble to really knuckle down and take uh, refugee uh, reports and uh, go back and look at the satellite data and recompile things, but the AP did it. Well, as time goes on, Jerome, you know, more and more information is actually emerging from the refugees and the, and the testimonials. When I was on the ground there myself just uh, about a month ago in the refugee camps, you know, I heard so many stories of massacres in different villages. And what that indicated to me at that time was that there was a systematic, organised and pre-planned campaign of genocide against the Rohingya people. We had different villages uh, not connected to each other, say, explaining the exact same tactics used by the military in terms of mechanisms by which to clear out those villages and execute uh, individuals from the villages and also create rape camps within those. So the AP is the first to have actually discovered these kind of mass graves. But even whilst I was on the ground, you know, there was many other agencies that had these kinds of testimonials. So it doesn't come as, as much surprise now, um, you mentioned rape camps. Um, what, what was happening there? How did, what do people say about that? So what would happen in each of these villages is the military would come and surround the village. Then there'd be another unit that would come in and start burning down the houses randomly. Then there'd be a third uh, division of soldiers that would come and they would set up these particular huts within the village itself in which there'll be six soldiers at a time waiting. And then the females would be taken to those, uh, those huts and then they'd be gang raped systematically in an organised fashion and then when they're finished with them they would simply burn down those those uh, huts and this happened on a consecutive kind of basis in a number of different independent villages so it, once again it indicates it was all pre-planned. Um, now people have been talking with the refugees uh, for, for months now about this uh, and when you present the evidence to the government in Myanmar they just flatly deny all this. Uh, they, they, the Associated Press report came out and they denied the report. They said the memo was wrong and that this is, this is not what's going on. Well, the government of Myanmar, you know, I met with a number of policymakers who have actually met with the leadership, including the military leadership in Myanmar. And their position is very consistent, is that the refugees are burning their own houses down. Uh, they're murdering themselves, though they're being murdered by their own militants. In fact, the government of Myanmar has undertaken investigations of this in the past. There was an investigation they did, I believe, a few years ago, in which they, after, and this was after a number of villages were burnt down, you know, tens of thousands of Rohingya were killed and 140,000 were forcibly displaced to Bangladesh. And the conclusion of that report of the official government of Myanmar was that the only crime that was committed was that a soldier stole a bike. And that is an official actual report. So we can't put much currency into their own kind of investigation. Well, what, is it significant that the UN Special Envoy on Human Rights in Myanmar said that the AP report bears all the hallmarks of genocide? Is that a, a change of verbiage for that? I think that's very significant because I've always believed this was a genocide. The title of my book was Inside Myanmar's Hidden Genocide. 
the new addition is actually called Inside Myanmar's Genocide and the word hidden has actually been removed because it's no longer hidden. You know, I've always claimed that this was a genocide and so have a number of international legal experts and international bodies. The UN has refrained from calling it a genocide because once they call it a genocide, it is actually a legal term which automatically triggers the Security Council to what to enact what they call R2P, the responsibility to protect, which means that they must have some sort of intervention and they can have that intervention without a Security Council resolution. So the UN in the past, even in a situation like Rwanda, where you know hundreds of thousands were killed, they refrained as much as possible to call it an actual genocide. And it was the same situation here. They simply did not want to intervene. There was no political appetite to do so. It seems like the system has created a system to not intervene in genocides by simply not acknowledging them or using the word. This is precisely the case. You've, you've hit the nail exactly on the head. It is designed specifically to ensure that word genocide is not used. So they use other terminology, forcibly displace, ethnic cleansing, which don't actually have a legal bearing whatsoever, but they refrain from using the word genocide. But I'm absolutely certain, Jerome, that in years to come, this will be recognised as a genocide, as was Rwanda, as was Darfur, as was you know many of these other places. It will all be done in hindsight when, when the actual acts are over. I'm talking with Azim Ibrahim. He is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Policy and the author of The Rohingyas, The Inside uh, Myanmar's Genocide, dropping the word hidden. And, um, you know, it's been interesting to see what was developing with the repatriation effort because the government of Bangladesh signed up with the government of Burma and they, they cut a deal to repatriate some of the you know, 680,000, 700,000 refugees who were in Bangladesh. Um, everyone criticized the agreement. The UN criticized this agreement. Um, it, it's a strange agreement on the face of it, um, and they're having difficulty implementing it right now. They've been trying to implement it, and the Bangladesh government is, has not done it. They have not come forward. Um, what are some of the problems you're seeing with this? Well, I, I've always argued from the outset that the government of Myanmar is not serious about repatriating the Rohingyas and taking them back. Uh, They basically expelled, they spent half a century trying to get rid of them. They have mined the border to ensure that none of them come back. I believe that the government of Myanmar is simply trying to buy time until the world attention moves on to the next crisis and those Rohingya refugees become a permanent fixture within Bangladesh itself. And if you look at the criteria by which the government of Myanmar wants the Rohingyas to come back, you know, I spoke to a number of refugees in in the camps themselves. It's designed to ensure that none of them actually ever come back for example, is based on a 1993 law in which they have all the refugees have to produce, for example, birth certificates from their grandfathers at a time when birth certificates were not issued. They have to produce documentation of which village they come from, villages that have all been burnt down. And then they have to produce documentation of where they cross the border from Myanmar into Bangladesh. So the equivalent of passports and passport stamps. So this is designed specifically to ensure that none of them come back. And even if they were to come back, where are they going to go back to? The villages have been burnt down. The land has been seized and has already been redistributed to the locals. And the locals are harvesting it now. So they have nothing to come back to. I suspect they may take a few dozen, a few hundred, maybe a thousand families or so as a token gesture, but they've already built camps for those families. They're essentially going to put them back into concentration camps. 
And the idea would be from from the Burmese government's perspective is they're going to rebuild their homes and find a place for them at some time. But that <laughs> that doesn't seem to be practical to have. Well, this isn't the first time this has happened, Jerome. This has happened numerous times before, and it's the same procedure. They'll take back a few, you know, a few hundred families or so, and they'll put them into these open air camps, in the, and they'll essentially tell the international community they'll take funds from the international community to rebuild their villages and rebuild their homes. But that never transpires, and uh, and as I said before, they've actually nothing to go back to. Now, uh, you know, the international community, I guess, has some uh, ability to respond here, to do something, but they, but the international community has not done a lot. It's, it's, um, it's interesting to see the remarks of Bill Richardson, who was uh, recently on this 10-member advisory board uh, meant to implement uh, recommendations by Kofi Annan's group on uh, what's happening in Burma. And he quit the advisory board and had so many bitter things to say, I mean, directly about Aung San Suu Kyi. She believes there is a concerted international effort against Myanmar. I believe she's wrong. She blames all the problems that Myanmar is having on the international media, on the UN, on human rights groups, on other governments. I think this is caused by the bubble that's around her, by individuals that are not giving her frank advice. Um, this begins to look uh, really bad for her. And, you know, I mean, it looks bad enough already. But to, to hear um, this kind of verbiage where he's having frank discussions with her and uh, not getting this kind of response, it's bad. Yeah, well, Bill Richardson is somebody that has known Aung San Suu Kyi for a long time. They were actually very close friends. But he's also a very highly experienced diplomat that cut his teeth during the Balkans War. So he's seen this situation before. And I think he realised very quickly that this uh, this commission that was set up is simply to demonstrate to the world that Aung San Suu Kyi is busy and trying to get to the bottom of this problem and trying to solve it. She's essentially trying to look busy. And this is what she specialises in. She specialises in setting up these various commissions that have no teeth at all. They basically report and then the reports are ignored. But it's just to demonstrate to the international community that they're that they're they're doing what they can. And Richardson himself, you know, being the experienced diplomat that he is, he realised, I think, very quickly that this is just a stitch up. That the, the you know this commission is is not going to produce anything at all. Well, what is her position? What is she really getting at here? Uh, some people, like Roger Cohen in the New York Times, say, "Well, she's playing a long game for democracy in Burma, and she has no, utterly no leverage over the military. And if she speaks out on this issue, she gets uh, pushed out." Um, but when you hear Richardson uh, describing the, their conversations like this, that doesn't seem to be what's happening. Yeah. No, I fully accept that Aung San Suu Kyi, the civilian leader, does not have direct control over the military. You know, she does not uh, command the military to engage in this genocide or ethnic cleansing. But at the same time, she is not without power. You know, the, one of the reasons why this is happening in 2000, this happened in 2017, Jerome, is because she essentially became a shield for the military. The military actually undertook a dry run of this, a test run, in October 2016, in which they burnt a number of villages, killed a number of Rohingya and expelled hundreds of thousands of them. And the military realised that Aung San Suu Kyi defends them in public, which means that they can actually scale this up considerably. Just to give you an example, when the UN reported in March 2017 that 52% of Rohingya women had been raped, she said that this is fake rape. That's her words. When the BBC's Fergo Keane pressed her that uh, there's ethnic cleansing going on in your country, she said, 
said this is too strong a term to use and both sides are equally to blame, which is the moral equivalence of saying both the blacks and the whites were to blame for apartheid in South Africa or the Jews were equally to blame for the Holocaust. There is simply no comparison whatsoever. So she has become a shield for the military, which they re- which is why they realise that they can take this up a, f- a few notches. But despite that, you know, even if you accept she doesn't control the military, she does have one very powerful weapon and that is her voice as a moral conscience of that country as a most famous citizen of that country as a Nobel laureate she could certainly speak up she commands 79% of the electorate you know she has considerable influence in that country but she has continuously refused to do so she has even refused to use the term Rohingya even when pressed repeatedly so she doesn't even recognize that these people exist what must the climate be like in Burma when it comes to the Rohingya? I was reading an article about um, Facebook and how Facebook was uh, you know, not very well known just a few years ago in Burma but became very popular and that really there's a lot of verbiage on there uh, that would support a genocide against the Rohingya and that there's a climate that is uh, so pro genocide on this issue that um, that there's like a, a, a true bubble of, of power there. Yeah. Well, Facebook has become the main vehicle by which propaganda against the Rohingya is disseminated. See, Myanmar was a very close society, you know, for, for decades. It was a military dictatorship. And when it opened up, it went from being a close, highly controlled, state-controlled media to you know, the social media. So it kind of missed out all the kind of parts in between in which a, a, a civil media has developed. But Facebook has now unfortunately become the main mechanism by which uh, propaganda, false propaganda against the Rohingya is spread. And ironically, Facebook has also been closing down many of the accounts of people that are trying to spread news on the atrocities against the Rohingya. Um, uh, so it's become quite a negative kind of influence. And uh, even when Facebook was pressed upon this, they refused to do anything about it because this is the only way that they can actually have access to Myanmar. So um, it, it sounds <laughs> this sounds like something uh, someone else could do something about in, in this country to bring pressure on Facebook to, to change its policies in Myanmar. This seems like uh, an easy moral call for Facebook. Well, a number of people have tried, you know, as far as I'm aware, a number of politicians and policymakers have tried to, you know, highlight these concerns. And this isn't just in Myanmar, you know, Facebook has has behaved in this kind of fashion in a number of countries, um, uh, you know, morally irresponsible. But Facebook is a a massive, massive corporation now. And, uh, you know, they have a considerable influence and power. And to put pressure on them um, uh, is, is a very difficult undertaking. Um, what do you think the government in Myanmar is getting what it wants out of this genocide? I mean, they're they're plying their time. The international community is not doing anything, and there we are. No, the, the, this this exercise for the military and the government of Myanmar has been, you know, complete a complete success. They have spent half a century trying to rid the Rohingya, believing that they are illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. Their idea was to create a Burma Buddhist nationalist country and uh, and they have they have succeeded in this. They have managed to expel all the Rohingya. You know, my fear is that now that they have finished with the Rohingya, the military is now turning onto the many of the other minorities. And you have to remember that Myanmar is a country that has been at war with every 
almost every ethnic minority since independence. These are the longest-running civil wars in the world, and now an emboldened military is now turning upon the other minorities. Azim Ibrahim is the author of The Rohingyas, Inside Myanmar's Genocide. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about how cities like Vienna are being better designed for women. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The concept of a fair shared city sounds appealing, doesn't it? Fair shared city. That's what they should be all about. It's an urban planning idea from Austria that grew out of an intentional effort to make sure that the needs of women were included in the design of city spaces. Eva Kyle has been at the center of the movement. She is a gender planning expert with the city of Vienna. She's functioned in various roles there since uh, the 90s. Thanks very much for joining us, Eva Kyle. It's a pleasure for me. Hello. You know, I think a lot of listeners probably don't really think about women using a city space differently than men. Everybody just goes out and uses the city. But um, how, do, well, how does that practically work out? How do women use the city differently than men? The daily life of grown-up men and women still differ because of the amount and structure of unpaid work or care work they are doing. This makes a difference for, for example, if you're doing care work uh, and family work, you have a rather complex, you really, um, depending about the quality uh, uh, your neighborhood offers to do the shopping, how far away or how, how near kindergarten facilities, childcare facilities and educational facilities are. So this really makes a difference. Sport and leisure interests of women and men differs. And also the economic situation is different. We know from the analysis the majority of pedestrians are women and the majority of car drivers are men. Uh, women also use public transport means. Bikers are male. So you find quite a lot of distinction, although we know that for the individual it, it, it can be very different. Uh, so the average man and average woman is also a construction, but I think the social roles, nevertheless, they, they are still different. How did this effort get started in Vienna? What happened to kick this uh, effort off to include women? The Social Democratic Women's Party in Vienna invited a lot of people and experts like me and to discuss about the situation of women in Vienna. And I was responsible for the planning group, and my idea was not to debate it on a very abstract level, but really to take the personal experience of everyday life of every member of this working group for this weekend, how we 
live in the city, how we feel when we move, what our time patterns are, how satisfied or unsatisfied we are with, with our housing situation, our, our mobility moods. And this was so inspiring to see all these different aspects of all the participating different women of different age and social conditions that we decided it would be good to make an exhibition out of it. And so there was an exhibition created and it was called Who Owns Public Space? Women's Everyday Life in Vienna. And this was for the first time that planning issues from a women's perspective was formulated and it was quite a big success. There were 4,000 visitors. And so politicians realized that there is really a need and an interest. And that was in the early 90s in Vienna, the exhibition Who Owns Public Space. And uh, since then, you've ticked off a lot of different, very specific projects to make the city more uh, friendly towards women. We started with pedestrian needs because we analyzed two-thirds of daily ways done by foot were done by women and two-thirds of car ways were done by men. Pedestrian needs at that period really was a blind spot of mobility planning. And we also spoke for the first time about spaces of well-being and spaces of anxiety. And so it's really where you really feel comfortable and what are the conditions that you feel comfortable in what places you like and why. And on the other way, what places really create unpleasant feelings or what places and streets you are avoiding. We were something like trendsetters because at that time nobody spoke about public space. Now it's that topic in urban design. It has arrived as an important topic in the mainstream, but at that time public space was really neglected. I'm talking with Eva Kyle. She's a gender planning expert at the city of Vienna, and we're talking about how they've been uh, using women in the center of their urban planning for many years now in Vienna. I was struck by the work that you guys did on parks and with young women in Vienna. What, what kind of data did you use, and how did you change the park system? First, there was a social scientific survey done by two feminist sociologists, and they realized that we really have a problem of fairness in public parks in Vienna because uh, green open space in the inner dense uh, central district is really rather rare. And so you really have a concurrence of different users And so the more dominant groups, they really take a lot of space. And the the less self-assertive groups, they really have a a lack of space. Girls up from the year of 12 years, they really disappear out of the parks. And all the, the sport facilities and playing facilities were really focused on the interests of boys. How do you change something like that? For example, we have high fences in a restricted area. You really need high fences to protect the other park users. And if this is a very hermetic uh, uh, space, uh, 
then the dominant group stays in India all the time and nobody else has the chance. And we have made plenty uh, design competitions for new parks and there were uh, young female landscape planners and they uh, developed a prototype of a new pole cage which has a different form and different open entrances and offering different edges because we realized that girls like to stay on, on the edge and just to watch playing and then they conquer the room slowly. So really uh, tried to design structures that facilitate girls in their appropriation patterns. And did it work? Did you find that more girls used the parks after they were redesigned differently? Yes, we made evaluations and it showed clearly that take more space. We tested different participation methods to involve them directly, the girls, and this participation project has have proved to be very successful. And girls really liked to develop and to design their uh, their own facilities in the parks. Now, you also ended up in designing entire apartment complexes and uh, based on the needs of women. And uh, Vienna is a rapidly growing city, and people have been building new apartment complexes left and right, and you decided to make some of them directly applicable to the needs of women. So we started with a competition for subsidized housing complex because before there were only men um, involved for the urban design. And for, so we just turned it around and there were only eight women in a, in a competition and four of them then make them the design the project. We really try to facilitate uh, everyday life that uh, also the, to support the feeling of safety, for example, so that you always see lighted windows when we are coming home. So we, we change the orientations of the rooms and the functions of the rooms on every store. Or, for example, there are uh, storerooms for, for prams on every floor or uh, underground garage was designed really carefully to bring every daylight in. And also the open green areas, they were really designed differently so that different user groups find different uh, facilities within the area. I'm talking with Eva Kyle. She's a gender planning expert at the City of Vienna, and they've been working on uh, including women in the design of the city for many years. They have a fair shared city concept that's going on there. Um, is there a new frontier uh, that you want to work on in in this field as a gender planning expert? Are there areas of the city you're dying to get to next? We are running now two pilot projects again about participation methods because as you have, have already mentioned, Vienna is fast growing which means we have to build uh, with a higher density. This is good news for people who are looking for an apartment, but mo normally not very good news for people in existing neighborhoods because they are afraid of densification. They are afraid of losing former garden areas uh, now they, when they have the building blocks. 
we have tested how we can involve people, how we can look who is formulating what kind of needs and what wishes and expectations. And within this tense framework, because we are obliged to make urban design for quite considerable number of new apartment blocks, but how we nevertheless can really make an effort to create different public spaces and or semi-public green areas within the building blocks because people in phases of life, small children, when your mobility is really reduced because of your high age, then you are really focused on your surrounding. And then it's really important that you find an adequate designed open space. For the grown-up workaholics, the quality of the neighborhood is not so important. But for youngsters, kids and elderly people and people doing care work, it really counts how your immediate surrounding and neighborhood uh, is designed. And the thing you need are social niches, social places, uh, things that uh, where people come together, I imagine. We are redesigning now, for example, because of the extension of our underground line. Now there's the chance to redesign a, a public place in a rather poor migrant-dominated neighborhood. And now we really make a gender sense involving, trying to involve the people, also asking, for example, a homeless people about their needs and just really to increase uh, the quality of staying at the place and also to offer different groups that can coexist and reduce possible conflicts. What we can already call a standard is we make a social space analysis before just really looking who is using the place now, who is missing at the places, what are the, the user patterns and why. So really the systematic efforts to strengthen the social sensitiveness and social intelligence of planning and not to discuss it only on a, under aesthetical or functional uh, aspects without differentiation. I think that's uh, really necessary in periods where public money is... Uh, is running short. So you really have to be very thoughtful about how to use the resources of a city. Yeah, it seems like a lot of times places are designed with some uh, an architect sitting down and saying, well, here is how I think people should use this space. Or uh, instead of really kind of looking at what people want to do there first. It is a bit a problem because the most planners and designers are at least in Vienna, uh, white middle-class people, and they bring their specific self-understanding of the planning profession that they say, we know what people need and we know what people want. And this is the professional understanding. And so I think it's really important to make uh, planning experts sensitive about the social impacts of their proposals. You know, it sounds like you're doing a great job in Vienna, creating a fair shared city and doing all these new innovative design things. 
But do you have another place that you admire that you think, wow, they've really done a terrific job in including people in the design of the city? Uh, for me, there are two interesting regions. Uh, one are the Scandinavian planning culture is very holistic and very social sensitive and inclusive. So I see there are a lot of innovation. And on the other side, I'm very fond of the planning culture in, in the one I know a little in, for example, Latin America in poorer regions. They are very innovative. Three years ago, the World Wide Walk Conference here in Vienna, and it was really impressive with poor means how what a lot of fantasy and creativity was used really to improve public space. And I think we can learn in our regularized uh, cities with high normative levels for every building measurement. And sometimes I think we are really a bit overregulated and to involve these informal resources. So this gives me a lot of inspiration. Eva Kyle's been at the center of the movement for a fair shared city in Vienna, Austria. They're including intentional efforts to make sure the needs of women are met there in the design of city spaces. They've been doing it for a couple decades now. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us, and congratulations on what you're doing there in Vienna. Uh Thank you for giving me the possibility to share our ideas. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about human rights and the place that human rights holds these days. It seems a little embattled, and I'll talk with a deputy director of Human Rights Watch about um, the struggle of human rights these days in the world. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida and Amber Fisher. Thanks to Anna Waters and Galilee Abdullah, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today's program. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.